1: This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Britain's NCSC warns again that the UK is likely to face a Category 1 cyber attack within the next few years... In the U.S., government industry academic partnerships work toward making critical infrastructure more resilient to cyber attack. Pyongyang's Lazarus Group continues to rob ATMs using malware. U.S. officials complain that China is in violation of 2015's agreement to avoid industrial espionage. Bruce Schneier joins us to discuss his latest book, Click Here to Kill Everybody. And Russian observers give the U.S. a passing grade for fair midterm elections. From the Cyberwire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your Cyberwire summary for Friday, November 9th, 2018. National Cybersecurity Center Deputy Director Peter Yap warned again that Britain hadn't yet experienced a devastating Category 1 cyber attack, but that such an attack is likely. The NCSC has been sounding this alarm for the better part of a year, and one hopes they're being taken seriously. The threat they see comes from hostile nation-states, especially Russia. To put this in perspective, WannaCry, which had wide-ranging economic consequences, ranked only as a Category 2 cyber-attack. A Category 1 attack in the UK's system would be a national emergency. It's defined as a cyber-attack which causes sustained disruption of UK essential services or affects UK national security, leading to severe economic or social consequences or to loss of life. Warnings began late in 2017, and they continue today. In the U.S., the Department of Homeland Security and the National Institutes of Standards and Technology, that's NIST, are working with private industry on a wide range of industrial control system and IoT security measures to prevent or mitigate such an attack on their side of the Atlantic. DHS is continuing the progress it made towards securing election infrastructure, and it's also working on increasing opportunities for critical infrastructure operators to receive education and training that will help them keep their operations safer and more resilient. NIST has a new proposed set of standards out in the form of NIST IR-8219 capabilities assessment for securing manufacturing industrial control systems, and they're taking comments through the 6th of December. The industry partners in this effort to develop an anomaly detection and prevention capability include CyberX, OSIsoft, SecureKnock, and Security Matters. DARPA also conducted some power grid restoration exercises this week at the decommissioned animal disease research station that occupies Plum Island, New York, an isolated island in Long Island Sound. More reports on the exercise are expected in the coming days. The Lazarus Group continues its efforts to redress Pyongyang's financial shortfalls through theft. They've been making recent use of a Trojan known to researchers as FastCash. Researchers at security firm Symantec have dissected and described FastCash, which has been employed in ongoing campaigns to loot ATMs. NSA cyber strategist Rob Joyce described at Aspen Institute meetings how China has circumvented an agreement negotiated in 2015 that would have precluded industrial espionage in cyberspace. Joyce said that China has been in violation of the accord for the last two years at least. His statement is taken as a sign of growing frustration within the U.S. government over continuing Chinese cyber operations conducted for economic gain, mostly through the theft of intellectual property. With all this, Microsoft has renewed its pleas for an international accord that would bring formal norms to cyberspace. It's circulating an online petition for digital peace that's brief, well-intentioned, earnest, and frankly, a little utopian. The petition decries the weaponization of our shared online community. One certainly hopes for peace, of course, analog as well as digital, but the record of state conflict in the other four domains of potential conflict—land, sea, air, and space—moves one reluctantly to pessimism. The Internet Research Agency, a.k.a. Fancy Bear's St. Petersburg Troll Farm, seems to have conducted an odd ask-me-anything Reddit with itself. The Daily Beast noticed that the IRA used questions the Beast posed in response to an invitation— to ask them stuff to develop an illustrated audio interrogation suffused with hipster irony. They never replied to the beast, but just posted their own IMAs to an obscure corner of Reddit, asked and answered them all by themselves, while yucking it up about not being able to buy ads with rubles anymore. It's like the old letters from the editors the National Lampoon used to run. A study by behavioral scientists at MIT says, basically that people fall for fake news because they're careless and want to believe. As Wired puts it in their coverage of the research, quote, If you don't want to fall for fake news, don't be lazy, end quote. The researchers are convinced that laziness and inattention are more important than bias and ideological prejudice in causing people to swallow phony stories. And finally, TASS is authorized to disclose that Russian election observers reported to the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe that they found no irregularities in the U.S. midterms. So sleep easy, America. The Russian election observers, both of them, looked into exactly two polling places in D.C. and seven in Maryland, and they solemnly concluded everything seemed on the up-and-up. But watch your steps, Yankees. The Duma certainly will if you don't. We'd like to say, thanks, guys, but you seriously need to up your game. Nine locations are nothing. That number wouldn't cover even one congressional district. And if Russian observers were in the presence of election fraud, how would they even know it in the first place? And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And joining me once again is Professor Awais Rashid. He's a professor of cybersecurity at the University of Bristol. Uh, Welcome back. Um, Today we wanted to talk about uh, some blockchain issues, particularly establishing trust when you're using blockchain-based systems. What can you share with us today?
2: So blockchain is seen as the... Uh, silver bullet increasingly for um, everything and it's not uncommon for us to hear discussions about how blockchain will re- revolutionize everything from banking to security in the Internet of Things, from press to government, uh, with the presumption that the transparency of the ledger uh, will, will promote trust. In the industry, and and that's that's true to to a large extent because uh, the underlying cryptographic protocols actually do provide computational notions of trust. However, it's not to say that the more human aspects of trust are not to be considered because ultimately it's uh, people and organizations that engage in transactions using these these blockchain technologies. So uh, describe to me, I mean, what's the intersection between those two things between the tech and the human side? So there are multiple aspects of trust in this case. And the the key thing uh, that the underlying uh, cryptographic assurances provide us is that a transaction that takes place is actually logged and is visible for everyone to see, but that does not necessarily provide trust with regards to exchange of goods in the first instance which still requires other aspects of trust and that's what we see in for example systems like uh, bitcoin where then we have escrow systems and those kind of things and they all indicate that trust is more than just the underlying blockchain but requires other institutional entities there are other aspects of trust for example uh, we take it for granted that if a blockchain is implemented, then it is implemented correctly. And there is immediately trust in the people, the software engineers who are uh, developing and maintaining the blockchain. Uh, And and of course, uh, you know, uh, uh, trust can also be dependent on our sentiment towards uh, towards the system and again we we see this in um, uh, cryptocurrencies such as such as bitcoin because when you hear negative stories like exchanges falling down then that has an impact on how people behave in terms of their transactions and for example trying to get rid of bitcoin or trying to buy bitcoin depending on whether they're positive or negative stories so it's not not uh, uh, unreasonable to assume that we will see similar things when it comes to for example doing energy trading or Or other kind of applications using using blockchain.
1: And is it fair to say that I think um, blockchain has a bit of a PR problem right now? I mean, it's almost become a, kind of a punchline in the industry sometimes.
2: Y- yes, but all all technologies go through this uh, hype cycle, the Gartner hype cycle, of course, you know, and in in the beginning, you know there is great hype and then there's the trough of you know almost dis- disillusionment. And then there is sort of you know further progress. And I think blockchain does does have a lot of value to bring to a number of applications. Uh, But the key that we need to think about is that no system is successful simply because it is uh, computationally sound in terms of the security guarantees that it can provide. It's ultimately... Uh, people and organizations and the structures around it, which lead to adoption in, in in the first instance. And and again, we are seeing that with regards to things like the cryptocurrencies that that use blockchain. And I think as other applications are developed, we can learn from those those experiences and understand what kind of structures do we need to create around blockchain-based systems that will engender trust uh, within people to actually engage with them and use them.
1: Professor Awais Rashid, thanks for joining us. He's a well-known security technologist and author of a dozen books. His latest is titled Click Here to Kill Everybody, Security and Survival in a
0: Hyperconnected World. It is a provocative title. It is my first clickbait title. It's really not what I'm used to writing. I'm generally the anti-fear kind of person. But remember, the goal of a title is only to get someone to read the, uh, the subtitle. You need something provocative to have people look and... The, the subtitle is, is more what the book is about, Security and Survival in a Hyperconnected World. I think it's a great title. It really talks about something that is unique to computers and computer threats, and that's this notion of a class break, that all copies of Microsoft Windows, or a website software, or in the future, a, a car or a medical device can be hacked at once in a mm-hmm. way that just isn't possible in real-world things.
1: Well, I mean, let's dig into this. I mean, you, you start in the introduction of the book with this notion that everything is becoming a computer. But what are you getting at there?
0: The idea that computerization is affecting things. You know, old computers are screens we stare at. And our metaphors really reflected that. We go online. Right? They're very physical. We upload, we download, we enter a chat room. Our computers were something we went to and interacted with, our, our phones and our laptops. What's changing is that computers are becoming embedded in our environment, our cars, our appliances, medical devices, large things like power plants, toys. And it used to be that these devices had some kind of computerization. Toaster has have had uh, chips and st- computing for for a long time. But now they are really general purpose computers with peripherals attached to them. So a refrigerator is really a computer that keeps things cold. And a microwave oven is a computer that makes things hot. And an ATM machine is a computer with money inside. And a car is a computer with four wheels and an engine. Now this is, is this reconceptualization going on where the computer becomes the core and then everything else is the peripheral attached to the computer. Uh,
1: your book is uh, is organized into two main sections. Uh, part one is trends. Part two is solutions. Uh, in the trends section, uh, you have a, a chapter called Everyone Favors Insecurity.
0: What's your uh, notion there? Surveillance capitalism is the business model of the Internet. Hmm. I mean, the way companies make money on the Internet is they spy on us and they use the information against us, generally for advertising, right? That's the business model. That's the core business model of the internet. As these computers go into physical devices, devices that do stuff, we're seeing a different model emerge, and that's a model of control. This is a model where the company that sells you the thing controls how you use it. So an example might be, uh, an easy one might be a Kindle. You own the Kindle, but Amazon can reach into your Kindle and remove a book if they want. They can decide whether a particular book you're allowed to do text to speech. They could, if they want, decide if the Kindle works in different geographical areas or, or maybe you know, for different books you can expand or contract the text different amounts. They have a, an amount of control. And we're seeing this with Ah, uh, John Deere and the tractors they sell to farmers. Mm-hmm. We're seeing this with uh, high-end espresso machines sold into restaurants. so this this notion of control that allows the company to extract a lot more money from their their customers by separately charging for different features and and access and and repairs, sort of the entire life cycle. Both of these business models, the surveillance and control, rely on, the manufacturer getting into your device after they've sold it to you. And that is an insecurity. To do that, you must have these devices be insecure. So we are seeing everything being built with these insecurities. At the same time, governments also want to reach into your devices for uh, law enforcement purposes in the US, for social control in China, and you know other reasons in between, and there again, that access relies on insecurity. So it's very hard to build security into the Internet when all these interests favor insecurity. So
1: how do you see this playing out as, as we continue down this path? Uh, how are these risks going to, uh, going to show up and what, what effects are they going to have on us?
0: So we don't know. My, my worry is we're going to see the same kind of computer attacks against all of these new computers, it's a ransomware against cars and DDoS attacks against power plants. You know, spam being set from your refrigerator. And you know, some of these we are seeing. The difference really is that these new computers, Internet of Things, I want to call it, affect the world in a direct physical manner. That they they're no longer about data; they're about life and property. And I worry about real physical risks. I worry about what happens when someone hacks. All of the computer door locks in a city and they open or, or they refuse to open or, or, or something happens. Uh, we've already seen demonstrations of, of remote hacking of cars where, at speed, a hacker can disable the steering, disable the brakes. I mean, that, that, that used to be just about data. Now it's about life and property. A lot of what I talk about in the book, and that sort of echoes the title, that suddenly computers can kill people. In a way, they couldn't five years ago because they were just about data.
1: So let's go through some of the possible solutions. That's the second half of the book. Uh, how, how do you suppose we can get a handle on this?
0: So I really see this as a policy issue. That the problem is less tech and more policy. I mean, yes, there are tech problems, and they're real, and they'll they'll require money and engineering to solve. But they are, you know, sort of go to the moon hard and not faster than light like, travel hard. the are things we can do. The real problem I see is that the policies don't favor more security. That the current policies in place favor less security. They right? Favor the security we saw with Equifax or we're seeing with Facebook. You know, underspend on security and uh, weather any storm if, uh, if bad things happen and just hope you don't get regulated. A- and that's just not gonna fly when it is actual dangerous things. So I, I look at a whole series of, of solutions. because It's never gonna be one thing. Hmm. I look at regulations, and you know, actual government mandating levels of security, like we saw just, just recently when California passed an IOT security law. I mean, they did a little bit, but it's a start. I look at things that different regulatory agencies can do, Federal Trade Commission, and others, I look at international agreements, liabilities, in ways that we can sort of generally raise the cost of insecurity, so companies are more likely to choose security, and then how that would spur innovation in new techniques of security once there is a market for it.
1: You know, we see companies like Facebook, um, Twitter, and and I guess to a lesser extent Google. Saying that they would welcome some sorts of, of, of regulation, so at least they'd, you know, they'd have some uh, some certainty there.
0: Do you think um, they're being sincere in, in that uh, in that request? Uh, I mean, they're not being sincere. No, no company wants regulation because tells them to do things. So what's going on is interesting. Uh, the states are starting to look at regulation. I mentioned California, also New York and Massachusetts. So we're going to start to see states regulate both security and privacy. And these companies don't like that because the states are likely to be effective and there's sort of less lobbying that they can do. What the big companies want now is if the federal government to step in, pass very lax regulation that these companies can influence to forestall the states. So I see it as very self-serving, as a way to avoid regulation while pretending to like it. Additionally, there's another dynamic, and that regulation, if done badly, favors incumbents. Right? It becomes a barrier to competition. So I see these larger companies looking at this as as, as in, in two ways, as a barrier to forestall state action, and as, if they can craft it right, a way to forestall competition.
1: Our thanks to Bruce Schneier for joining us. His latest book is titled Click Here to Kill Everybody: Security and Survival in a Hyper Connected World. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at the Cyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland, out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.
2: Hey, all, Rick here. At N2K Cyberwire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network.